I knew, but in a world where there is so much bad news reported in the media and so much cynicism, even in the reporting of the news, I thought it was rather delightful a couple of weeks ago to see the obvious joy and delight on the face of the Chancellor of the Exchequer and his wife on the birth of their baby uh, son. This was especially so uh, given the tragic loss of their first child, uh, Jennifer Jane, some two years previously. We saw another face of the Chancellor that we don't often see. And isn't it clear that there's an obvious joy and delight on his face? I'm sure we all wish them well. Uh, Dr. Rona Hughes of the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary told reporters it was a very emotional moment and they both wept tears of joy. If you've had the privilege, and it is a privilege, uh, to be a parent, you'll agree that the birth of a child really does change everything. In fact, after a few weeks, it's hard to remember what life was like B.C., before children. Uh, Colin Adams, our student and youth worker, was telling me that uh, since the birth of his son, Glenn, he spoke to the folk who do our website and asked them to change his profile on our website and to remove completely the section that says, what are your pastimes? <laughs> Not, of course, that he or we would ever begrudge the wonderful gift and joy that a child brings into our lives. But it certainly changes everything and our, our priorities are changed. And certain key events in life do change our priorities, especially those that are literally matters of life and death. And the greatest of these is not when we experience the birth of a child, wonderful though that may be, and is. The greatest event in our lives is when God comes to live within us by His Spirit, and give us new life and new birth. It is such a radically different experience to everything else that Jesus himself, our Lord, speaking to a very religious man, said to him, it's being born again. Born again of the Spirit of God. And in our last study, we saw how this happened for the first time on the Jewish day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came upon those gathered disciples and brought them new life. The Spirit was poured out on them and poured into them. And they went out into the streets proclaiming the new good news about Jesus Christ and offering this new gift of new life in the Spirit to the crowds that were gathered for the festival. And we saw how 3,000 people responded to that invitation and were baptized in water as a sign of their allegiance to Christ, and God fulfilled His promise by baptizing them in His Spirit. And from that moment on, everything changed in the lives of these people. And at the end of the second chapter of the book of Acts, which is our reading this morning, Dr. Luke, the author, describes what happened in the lives of these 3,000, well, at least 3,120 people, this rapidly growing community who were devoted to Christ, but also devoted and committed to other things. So let's just read those verses together and then we're going to look at them. I love what it says in verse 42. Well, verse 41 tells us, those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000 were added 
to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now notice in this reading that Luke begins by focusing on the priorities of these spirit-filled people. A change of direction from their previous experience. A change of priorities. He tells us what they devoted themselves to. The word translated devote there, the definition of it is, a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. And Luke here records four things that they were devoted to, committed to. I'm going to comment very briefly on the first three and then focus on the fourth because that's our theme today. Notice, first of all, they were devoted to the truth, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, had a ministry of around three years, very significantly, he spent almost all of that time, that quality time, with these 12 men who he chose to be his disciples. Teaching and training them for what lay ahead of them. To go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I have told you. The apostles were taught by Jesus. And now, empowered by the Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, they are now equipped to fulfill their calling. The apostles now teach the new believers. In his commentary on Acts, John Stock comments, the very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. And these new pupils were eager to learn. They were devoted, committed to finding out what Jesus had said and taught so they could put it into practice in their lives. They were devoted to the truth, the apostles' teaching. Their second priority was they were devoted to one another. He said they were devoted to the fellowship. The word fellowship literally means sharing something that you have in common with others. So what was it that these people had in common? Well, they had a common experience, a shared experience of the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, you're brought into a relationship with God through His Spirit. You become His child. But you also discover an even more, well, something that's almost as remarkable, that you join this enormous family of people who have the same experience. And wherever you go in the world, you find Christians who have a shared experiences. We may be very different in many ways. The other week we looked at, we asked people to stand up, and there were 30 different nationalities represented in the morning service. And yet we have this common experience that we share of belonging to Christ and his family. 
And that commitment was expressed practically in that they shared their lives. They shared their possessions and their time. They were so devoted to one another that they voluntarily and gladly even sold possessions and goods to help those of their number who were in need. And not only that, they spent much of their time with one another, meeting daily, sharing food in their homes. They were devoted to one another, to the fellowship. Notice the third thing. They were devoted to Christ, to the breaking of the bread. Breaking of bread simply can mean sharing a meal together. As in verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with blood and sincere hearts. However, in verse 42, the expression is they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. Am I getting a second microphone? I thought I'd leave that one out. Goodness me, is that even less loud than it was before? Can you all hear? I'm sorry, I thought I was shouting. There we go. In verse 42, the expression is they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, which almost certainly means more than just a normal meal that they shared together, though a meal would have been included on most occasions. Rather, it's the expression used for that special meal that Jesus instituted on the night when he was betrayed when he broke bread and gave it to them as a symbol of his body, which he was about to give for them on the cross, the wine, a symbol of his blood that was about to be poured out for them. They were remembering together the death of Jesus. And Jesus told them to do this in remembrance of me, a sign of their devotion to Christ as they recall and give thanks for the sacrifice Jesus made on their behalf. We're going to do that in a moment around the Lord's table here in this place, continued down the centuries, We may do it slightly differently from other Christians, but we're united in this devotion to Christ and our focus on the cross of Jesus because we need to come here again and again and experience God's forgiveness. That's why they're devoted to that, because we need God's forgiveness focused on Christ. So they were devoted to the breaking of bread. So then, these were the first three priorities of the spirit-filled believers. Change priorities devoted to the truth. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to Christ. Now we move on to our focus today, the fourth priority, which tells us that the early Christians were also devoted to God. Look what it says, to prayer. It's very easy when you read the list to pass over the last item without too much comment. Look at it again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, yeah, fellowship, yes, breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's so obvious what it means. And unlike many other issues, it's, it's probably the one issue that all Christians of all shades and opinions agree on, a bit like the theological equivalent of motherhood and apple pie. You know, who's going to fall out about Christians ought to pray? I have to be honest, looking at my records, the last time I preached on these verses some years ago, I simply commented very briefly on them. But today I want to look more closely at the part that prayer plays in the life of a church. For the emphasis here is not on personal prayer, vital though that is, it's on corporate prayer. What churches do when they come together, they pray together. And I really think it's important that we ask, what priority prayer has in the life of our church? And the best way to judge this is to look at the priority it had in the lives of these early Christians, described in the book of Acts. Uh, The title we chose for this series is The Church uh, That Prayed. Uh, So I want to look a little more closely at our subject and the place prayer has in the life of the early church, expressed in the title Prayer and Priorities. It's worth looking through the book of Acts sometime and looking at the numerous references there are to prayer. And undoubtedly, 
there are many times the Christians prayed that are just not mentioned because it was so much a part, an integral part of their lives. So what can we learn about their prayer lives? I simply want to focus on three very straightforward themes. To answer the questions, where, when, and how did the early Christians pray? When, where, and how? First of all, uh, let's start with where. Where did they pray? Uh, we learn from verse 46 that they met together every day in the temple courts. Uh, the temple courts were the outer area of the temple precincts. The temple itself, where the sacrifices took place, were in the middle, quite a small area, small building. But there were huge precincts on the outside. The outer part was called the court of the Gentiles, because non-Jews were allowed to enter that part, but not the rest. It's been estimated you could have got around 200,000 people in there on any one day. Well, these Christians were 3,000 plus, and they met together in the temple courts. Later on in Acts chapter 5, uh, we read that they met in one specific place, in, Sol in Solomon's colonnade. You find that in Acts 5 verse 12. That was on the eastern edge of the temple precincts. And such meetings, therefore, would have been a large grouping of all the believers together. They would have said, right, we'll meet again, and perhaps met daily even, meeting in the temple courts on the eastern edge of the temple precincts. However, I believe it's something more than that. Uh, the believers didn't just choose the temple courts because it was a good place to meet and a nice location and had some shelter from uh, the, the elements and the sun particularly. Uh, the book of Acts strongly suggests that the first Christians continued to join in the regular times of prayer in the Jewish temple until they were finally thrown out. They almost certainly wouldn't have joined in anymore in the sacrificial system, but nonetheless they continued to meet for regular times of prayer. Um, they Literally, it says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the prayers, suggesting something more formal in the way that they prayed. If you look at the next verse in Acts 3, you discover the, the next story about Peter healing the crippled beggar. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three o'clock in the afternoon. So the early Christians still attended regular prayer meetings there. And I believe it's important to say that there is still a regular place for corporate prayer of a church, a whole church together, in the lives of our fellowship. And if we complain that it's not what it should be, remember that it probably was, wasn't what it should have been in the temple in Jerusalem. And it certainly wasn't what it should have been in the synagogues that our Lord attended regularly, week by week, when he was on earth. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and improve the quality and the character of what happens when the church meets for prayers, we'll see in a moment, but it's not an excuse for not attending at all. And not just attending the church prayer meetings, but being devoted to them, committed to them. I mean, it's just a straightforward fact, and I've said it before, and I don't say it to put guilt on people, it's a straightforward fact that on most Sundays in this church, around about 900, 1,000 different people pass through the doors. We rarely ever exceed a hundred people for a corporate prayer meeting. I, I can't think in all the years I've been here when we've ever had a corporate prayer meeting that numbers even the numbers of our membership in this church. Now I know we've got all sorts of reasons for that and some of them are understandable and the demands of life and families and so on. But I think it's an interesting challenge to ask ourselves why are we so casual about corporate prayer together? Why are we not devoted to prayer? 
I don't know. I just simply ask the question and I leave it with you as a challenge. Some of us maybe who are members of this church have never been to a church prayer meeting. It's not our commitment. It's not our devotion. Uh, but as well as this, Acts 2 tells us that they also met, not just in big groupings, but they also met in their homes. Most people in those days didn't have large homes. Uh, most homes could barely probably seat more than a dozen or twelve, uh, dozen or twenty people. So these meetings would have been much more, uh, much smaller. You could argue, of course, that they just met socially in their homes, which is clear that they did meet together for meals. And there's no specific mention of prayer. But that is to make a distinction between the sacred and the secular that they would, would have been unthinkable to the early Christians. After all, what bound them together was their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their love for him. So it would have been the most natural thing to talk about him. The events that were taking place in the city and in their church. To speak of God with prayer and praise and petition. And this would have been much more informal kind of prayer. As they met together in their homes. But nonetheless it was a real and natural part of their life together. Uh, today unfortunately we've separate, separated out these dimensions. We talk about sacred and secular we talk about certain buildings as being special buildings. We even talk about one of my bugbears. We talk about church building as being a sanctuary. I don't think there are any sanctuaries in the New Testament other than wherever Christians meet together. Some of the old hymn writers knew this very clearly. William Cooper from the 18th century wrote a great hymn. Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Every place is hallowed ground. So they met together informally as well as in large groups. So again, another challenge. When you meet together as Christians, many of you socialise with one another. We enjoy hospitality with one another. We share meals with one another in our homes. What place does prayer play in that? Do we talk about the Lord, is that the focus of our conversation? And is that expressed in what we do together? We try, as far as possible in our home, when we meet together, to at least conclude the evening by praying together, by reading God's Word together, maybe read a passage of Scripture, just a few verses, and just spend a little time in prayer together. Otherwise, our functions in many ways are no, more, no different from anyone else's social functions. I don't mean this as a kind of ritual, but it should be a natural part of our life together. That we've talked, you know, if we talk this to the Lord as much about the church as we do to one another about the church, we'd probably be a lot better off. How much time do we spend when we meet together socially? How much is the Lord at the centre and the focus of what we do? A second question about these first spiritual Christians. When did they pray? Well, the simple answer is in all circumstances. The most natural thing was to speak to God whatever was happening in their lives. It was a natural response, a natural reaction. If you believed in the kind of God recorded in the book of Acts, no wonder you would pray. I'll take just a few examples from the book of Acts. They prayed when an apostle needed to be replaced even before the Spirit came. They prayed when they were persecuted. We'll see that in the next in our series. They prayed when one of their leaders was imprisoned. They prayed when missionaries were sent out. They prayed when elders were appointed in local churches. They prayed themselves when they were put in prison, from in prison. 
Prayer was a natural response to any circumstance. And again, I have to ask you, you see, it's easy to talk. I, I feel I'm kind of fighting a losing battle with myself as well as you. All of you will be segmental. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. But the reality is not seen in the slogan or that we have the verse of the year card stuck in our, on our shelves, be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That's our verse of the year, Colossians 4 too. The reality is, do we really pray in all circumstances? Again, great old hymn, Joseph Scribner, 19th century. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Or what needs we often, or what peace we often forfeit. Or what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So, why don't we carry everything to God in prayer? Because we think we can carry most things ourselves. But if we took the words of Jesus seriously, apart from me, you could do nothing, then we would pray together a lot more. And sometimes God puts us as a church in circumstances where our own resources are not enough. Problem in a, in a large church like this where God has blessed us with many resources is that we sometimes don't find ourselves in situations very often where we feel... We just need God's help in this situation. Of course, we need God's help all the time, but, but visibly and practically, it's sometimes hard to communicate that kind of reality, isn't it? But only then will we pray naturally, persistently, will prayer be our devotion, our commitment. Some of you may have read the remarkable book, and I encourage you to get hold of a copy. It's the book of the year, Christian book of the year, The Heavenly Man, the story of Brother Yun, one of the leaders of the house church in China, which is growing at an astounding rate. If you read it, it reads like the book of Acts. It really does. It's a remarkable story. And uh, Brother Yun is, after many years of being in prison, persecuted for his faith, not only in China, but also in Myanmar, in Burma, is now based in Germany, sharing what God is doing in the churches in the West. And I was noticing, reading it, in his book he, he writes, many Christians have asked me why miracles and signs and wonders are so prevalent in the church in China, but not so evident in the West. This is his answer. In the West, you have so much. You have insurance for everything. In a way, you don't need God. When my father was dying of stomach cancer, we sold everything we had to try and cure him. When everything was gone, we had no hope but God. We turned to him in desperation and saw him mercifully answer our prayers and heal my father. We reasoned that if God could do that, he could do anything. So our faith grew and we saw many miracles. Now, I don't believe he's saying, give up your insurance and never go to a doctor. Rather, he's saying that God sometimes brings us to a place where human answers fail so that we can prove his power. He goes on to write, In China, the greatest miracles we see are not the healings or other things, but lives transformed by the gospel. We believe we are not called to follow signs and wonders, but instead the signs and wonders follow us when the gospel is preached. We don't keep our eyes on the signs and wonders, we keep our eyes on Jesus. What a challenge that is. It was to me reading that book, and again, I encourage you to get a copy of it. Third and final question then about the early Christians. How did they pray? We don't have a lot of detail about the content of the actual words that they said when they prayed together. That's one example we'll see in the next in our series. Uh, but verse 46 tells us it was characterized by praise to God, and the examples we've looked at focus on the petitions that they asked the Lord in time of need. In other words, praise and petition went together. Sometimes in very remarkable ways. 
For when they were persecuted, they didn't pray the persecution would be removed. They praised God, they rejoiced, they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Acts 6 verse 41. And while we may not know a lot in detail about the character of their meetings, let alone their prayers, what is clear is that it was characterized again by two things. By a wonderful balance of rejoicing and reverence. They met together, verse 45, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Again, John Stott comments helpfully in his uh, book on Acts. Every worship should be a joyful celebration of the mighty acts of God through Jesus Christ. It is right in public worship to be dignified. It is unforgivable to be dull. At the same time, their joy was never irreverent. But then he goes to comment on verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, which seems to include the Christians as well as the non-Christians. God had visited their city. He was in their midst. They knew it. They bowed before him in humility and wonder. It is a mistake, therefore, to imagine that in public worship, reverence and rejoicing are mutually exclusive. The combination of joy and awe as a formality and informality is a healthy balance in our worship. Yet how hard it is to keep that balance. We swing as churches to one pole or to the other one. So devotion to prayer along with the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread were the priorities of the early church. Now notice in Luke's concluding comment the result, verse 47. Very significant. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. In Jerusalem, as we've seen, everyone was filled with awe. The Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people. Later, of course, persecution would come. But it's very interesting, this. Evangelism as such was not one of their priorities. It doesn't say they were devoted to getting the gospel out, to preaching the gospel. Of course, they were committed to that. But it was more the outcome of the kind of life that they lived, the dynamic change that attracted people to them. And so the Lord added to their church. It was the result of their priorities. Others wanted to belong to this remarkable community. The impact of a spirit-filled church was never indifference on the part of those around them. Now let me say something that I believe is true. Indifference within the church will always produce indifference outside the church or out with if you're Scottish. I began with the story of Gordon Brown and his wife, the birth of this. Um, sadly, in the same week, and I won't even relate the details, I'll show them on the screen, there was yet another tragic case of a baby abused and killed by the parents. Yet there is a hidden tragedy in many homes. Children who aren't abused, but just ignored and loved by their parents. Maybe like Gordon Brown and his wife, they rejoice with the arrival of a new baby. But now they couldn't care less. They've become indifferent. And the greatest tragedy in any church is where Christians are indifferent about their faith. Apathetic about the truth. Couldn't care less really about reading or hearing the Bible unless they have nothing better to do. Some of us never pick up a Bible from one Sunday to the next. Apathetic about fellowship. We go to church when it suits us. We meet with our small group if we've nothing better on that evening, but other things take priority than meeting with other Christians. Apathetic about Christ. 
rarely ever coming to the Lord's table. Let me ask you a simple question. Maybe you didn't know it was communion this morning. When you came in and saw the table laid here, did you say, oh, great, it's communion this morning. That's wonderful. I didn't realize it was that this morning. Or did you say, oh, it's communion this morning. And apathetic about prayer. Christians would never meet to pray with any other Christians from one week to the next. Now, I simply say, where that is the case, there is something seriously wrong in a church. And seriously wrong, as wrong as it is with a parent who couldn't care less about the child. And if that is the case, the only solution is a fresh experience or maybe a first experience of being filled with the Spirit. That is the only solution. You see, I can tell you till the cows come home, as I tell myself, these should be our priorities as a church. And and I doubt if you're a Christian, many of you will disagree. You'll say, "Yeah, yeah, that's right, we ought to be like that. The difficulty is not convincing you that what I'm saying is right. The difficulty is changing you and me so that these things really are our priorities. You can't, you can't whip up enthusiasm. You can cajole people. Maybe some of you feel guilty and say, I better go to the prayer meeting on Tuesday. Well, you'll be there because I told you to be there. Or because you felt guilty. Not because you really felt, this is what I'm committed to. This is really what I want to do. It only comes about when God works in His by His Spirit and changes our priorities and changes our church. That is our great need. Our theme for this year is being devoted to prayer. We've we've spoken and thought about it every Sunday morning, almost every Sunday morning of this year, and we'll finish just before Christmas. But the reality is, the reality is, there are no more people meeting for prayer on Tuesdays or in fellowship groups, I don't think, than when we started. The reality is seen in our lives. And we can't change our own priorities. It's like you can't make someone fall in love with somebody so they want to spend time with them. Only God can do that by His Spirit. My conviction for myself and for this church is that we need a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit moving among us so that these things really are our priorities. Not because the preacher told us that they should be, but because God placed them in our hearts, poured His love into our hearts by His Spirit, And then and only then will the people outside say, wow, you're really committed to that. You really believe that. You really, you can't come out Tuesday. Why not? What's happening on Tuesday? I'm going to the church prayer meeting. The church prayer meeting? Yeah, because that's my priority. That takes precedence over everything else. What about Thursday? I'm at my fellowship group. I've committed to praying with some other Christians once a fortnight. Sorry, I I can't fit anything else in. This is my priority. And when that happens, people say, wow, this is really important to you, isn't it? Some some of our friends think, our membership of our church is this... A man once told me this, he said, I belong to the golf club and you belong to the church. That's your commitment, this is mine. It has to be something far more than that. But when that happens, then... People are attracted and they say, if it's that important, I need to find out about it. And then and only then, does God begin to add daily to the church those who are being saved. 
But only he can do that. But surely he will do it if we seriously ask him to do it and admit our need and seek his help. We're going to do that as we sing a hymn.